Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. It was May 2009 when the Hertfordshire-Bedfordshire local newspaper, The Comet, carried the following report. Police have launched a murder inquiry after a corpse was found floating in the Blue Lagoon at Arlesley on Sunday afternoon. The body was found by two men walking around the lagoon who alerted other men to their find. One of the men said, We were sitting around in the sun when these two fellows came up and said about something floating in the water and there was a terrible smell. We went over there and there was a body wrapped in sacking and the smell was terrible. We could see there was no head on the body and by the length of the sack I doubt whether it had any legs. Police have yet to confirm whether the head and legs were missing from the body and are expected to release a further statement. In the podcast this week, I examine the shocking events leading up to this find in a distressing story of exploitation, antisocial behaviour and a lifetime scarred by terrible childhood experiences. This week, I also failed to resist the temptation to shout Mighty Leeds United for no apparent reason. This week's podcast is sponsored by E-Squared Fitness, a fitness-based app that's based in London that lets you book the best fitness classes and gym sessions in just a few taps. No monthly memberships, just pay as you go. That's right, as you only pay for the workout you go to, there is no more of that guilty feeling for wasting money on those monthly gym memberships. With E-Squared, you can easily find the workout you want at the right time and just around the corner. Discover the coolest new workouts across London, whether you want to try yoga or boxing, indoor cycling or some HIT. E-Squared aggregates everything you want and much more. All you need to do is to download the E-Squared app, available on iOS and Android, and try it for free. That's simple. And even better, as a listener to this podcast, when you download the app, use the code POD20 for a free £15 credit. That is capitals POD20 to claim the free credit. So what are you waiting for? Get fitter, save money and support your favourite podcast by downloading the E-Squared app right now. Your life is hanging by a thread, but who is pulling the strings? A detective of no one to trust. A killer with nothing to lose. I'm delighted that for the fourth week running, this podcast is sponsored by Hangman, the new high-concept thriller from the international best-selling author of Ragdoll, Daniel Cole. This book is perfect for us fans of true crime, as well as anyone who loves a gritty thriller. The writing is fantastic, with quick-witted and pacey dialogue, and the plot moves quickly, as our super cool lead character, DCI Emily Baxter, races against time to catch up with the killer as the body count continues to rise. But frustratingly, she always seems to be just one step behind. Hangman has all the elements you loved from fantastic cat and mouse thrillers, like The Bone Collector with Denzel Washington. As well as buying this excellent book as a Christmas gift for family, I've also bought a copy for my secret Santa at work. Have you bought your copy yet? If not, get online now or head to your local bookshop to get your copy of Hangman by rising star Daniel Cole. It is the best fiction book I've read this year. Get it today.
I would like to thank all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new supporters, that's Hannah Lyon, Simon Heald, Josh Crookshanks and Grant Newton. Welcome to you all to our exclusive group of 156 people and I hope you enjoy the 23 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. But before we begin, let's briefly set some context for the date of the murder covered in today's story, the 21st of January 2009. The UK and US number one was Let's Dance by Lady Gaga, and top of the album chart in Australia were one of my favourite bands, that is, if I enjoyed bland unadventurous rock. It was Kings of Leon with Only by the Night. Yawn. In the news at this time, 61 people died in a nightclub fire in Bangkok, and US Airways Flight 1549 landed on the Hudson River shortly after takeoff from New York City. All the passengers and crew members survived amazingly in what became known as the Miracle on the Hudson, and Barack Obama was inaugurated as the 44th President of the United States. In UK true crime news, Karen Matthews and Michael Donovan were sentenced to eight years in prison for the kidnap of Shannon Matthews, the daughter of Karen, having held her captive in Donovan's flat in Dewsbury as part of a bid to claim £50,000 for her safe return after reporting her missing to the police. What an amazing case that was, one of the most incredible of my lifetime. And boy, we must say about Karen, did she have a face that only a mother could love. Arlesley is a small town in Bedfordshire, south-east England, around 10 miles northeast of Luton. The Blue Lagoon Lake is in Arlesley. It is an old clay-flooded pit, accessed by a vehicle track with a jetty and small beach leading to the water. The lake is about 12 metres deep, and in the water can be found huts, hoppers, boat wrecks, and some rather large pike, making it popular for fishermen. It was also the place where Michael Draper's decapitated and horribly mutilated body was dumped. He was just 27 years old when he died. Michael was born in 1982, the third of five children. His family environment was a tricky one, with all but his youngest siblings in care at different stages of their early lives. His early years were characterised by periods of trauma, turmoil and strained finances. The children were raised mainly by his mum, although there were a variety of men on the scene from time to time, although none stepped up to provide the stability desperately needed by Michael and his brothers and sisters. Michael was lively and bright, with a talent for maths. He was sociable and perceived by his siblings as the favourite. But by 1993, at the age of 11, unbeknown to him, his life had already peaked. His sister falsely accused him of sexually assaulting her. It later transpired that this was false and it was her own desperate attempt to escape the misery of her life. But this had a devastating effect on Michael, who was bullied terribly at school. Alongside this, the onset of puberty caused him physical issues and he had to undergo a mastectomy, aged just 13. In 1997, when Michael was 15, his mum informed the police that Michael had sexually assaulted a boy, quickly ensuring that he was lowered from the pedestal of the favourite child. 
This allegation resulted in his removal from the family home and from this point on his childhood was characterised by alternating between a children's home and foster carers in Luton. In 1998 he met another teenager called James Watt when they were both living in a children's home. James Watt too had had a troubled childhood with a family who really were everyone's worst nightmare, widely known for their antisocial behaviour. Watt, now aged 15, was placed in care for threatening his mum with a knife and was also convicted for shoplifting. Michael's decline steadily continued. By 1999, he'd acquired 10 convictions or cautions, largely for burglary, criminal damage and shoplifting, and was regarded as a danger to young children. The critical change during this period of his life was the shift from being bullied and bullying others to becoming a victim of bullying only. He stopped going to school, had only very limited contact with his family, began using the services of sex workers, and lived a chaotic life with no routine. The clear lack of stability was troubling. During 1999, 16-year-old Michael moved six times between two children's homes, a hostel, and a night shelter for homeless people. By 2000, he was resentful of the lack of help he was receiving from the police and social services, and he was struggling to manage his money and behind with his rent. He was then sentenced to the horror that is a young offender's institution. I know the staff try hard and work hard, but take a look on my blog how I view these utterly horrendous places that belong to another generation. And on his release, he is transferred to a hostel, led him to be more systematically bullied. The peers he was mixing with perceived him as immature and easy to manipulate. He had problems dealing with others, standing up for himself, and he needed the close support of other people. It was at this time that Michael's sister began a brief relationship with James Watt and moved into James Watt's family home. This family, as I briefly mentioned, really were the ultimate nightmare. You would rather have Piers Morgan living next door, I promise. And by 2001, police had received reports of 112 incidents at the Watt family home with 35 of those occurring in 2001. The household was chaotic. Friends, girlfriends and associates passed through. Few worked and those of school age rarely went to school. A collection of lizards, snakes and dogs added to the overall sense of bedlam in the household. In Luton where they lived, the family were notorious. Residents told her they would typically arrive in an area late at night, shattering its peace within a matter of days. Calm only returned when the family moved on or were forced out. Former neighbours said that the Watts brothers carried baseball bats and knives, claiming it's for their own protection. One former neighbour, who asked not to be named, said, They were rude, noisy and a nightmare. They would ride these motorbikes up and down the street, and I remember hearing that bars of soap had been pushed through their letterbox because they were such a dirty bunch. Another former neighbour, again too terrified to be identified, added, I had to have CCTV installed because the boys were coming onto my property and tormenting my wife and daughter by peering through the window at them when I wasn't there. The neighbourhood was just a nightmare and people were running scared of them. Another man describing how his family had been intimidated by the Watts brothers said, 
It was a life of hell, not just for my family but the surrounding neighbours. It was a constant nightmare, constant phoning up the police. Officers doing nothing, the family living in fear. They would pick on the vulnerable more than anything else. And Michael got drawn into this environment of the Watt family home, desperate to fit in and feel wanted. A decision that ultimately would cost him his life. He entered an environment where he was held captive by the family and abused. He was effectively kept as a slave and tortured for their own amusement and so they could keep his benefit payments. He suffered savage beating after beating and was forced to sleep handcuffed to a bed to prevent him escaping. He would be kicked, punched and forced to drink his own wee as well as being attacked with a baseball bat, a knife and a snooker ball. He was dropped on his head and made to stand in boiling water. He was hit with bats, shot, stabbed and made to walk around the house in only his boxer shorts. On one occasion he was made to goad a large pet lizard until it attacked him with its tail. Some of these beatings were recorded on mobile phones. James Watt wasn't seeing Michael's sister anymore. His girlfriend was Natasha Oldfield, a particularly nasty piece of work. She wrote a plan for a game show in which sums of money were linked to different assaults on Michael. Contestants would pay £5 to slap him, £15 to kick him and £25 to headbutt him. Written above the words in her diary to this show were Gilbert ends up dead. One day, one of the brothers said to him, Why are you putting up with this constant abuse? And he replied, I love you lot. You are my family. But the what sensed that Michael couldn't keep putting up with the punishment. And so to stop him trying to escape, his clothes were confiscated. And when he did manage to abscond, he was ruthlessly tracked down and punished. But on two occasions, Michael found the strength to escape the horror and he managed to get away to Cambridge one time and then Blackburn. But he was found and forcibly brought back. James Watt, an utter control freak, became obsessed with finding Michael when he escaped. The family would call the Department of Work and Pensions and pretend to be Michael using his national insurance number. They would then ask when he'd last signed on for his benefits and lie in wait outside the benefit office to find him. The police became aware of allegations that he'd been abducted from the street in Cambridge after the Watts tracked him down. And when questioned, he confirmed to officers that this was true, but told them he did not want to make a complaint, saying in a statement, I do not wish to make a complaint against these people for any of the offences I have talked about, because it will only make it worse for me in the long run. I just wish to return to Cambridge without fear of them following. I do not wish any more to do with them. I will not support a police prosecution and will refuse to attend court. Even as he made this statement, James Watts, his girlfriend and others were outside the police station waiting for him and he was transported by the police to the railway station to avoid them. Michael's brother Aaron had a good idea what was going on and said, I used to think, why are you going back to them? But I think Michael realised that the Watts would eventually catch up with him and it would mean more hassle for his own family. But shortly before his death, the violence ratcheted up another notch. 
to such an extent that another brother, Colin Watt, moved out of the family home after witnessing increasing violence towards Michael, telling his family, It made me feel ill. I can't take no more of it. I'm going. James Watt devised a new method of inflicting suffering on him, forcing him to lie on the floor and jumping on his stomach with both feet. Others also took part in this abuse. James Watt once forced him to stand against the wall as he blasted him with an air rifle and the pellets were still found in him when he died. It wasn't long after this that Michael significantly deteriorated. In terrible pain, he lost control of his bowels and was barely able to walk. He was in an awful date and died soon afterwards, between the 21st and 22nd of January 2009, in the house where he had suffered so much. They found him dead in his bed one morning, and it was then they decided to get rid of the body by cutting it up and dumping it in the Blue Lagoon. The girlfriend of one of the brothers recalled that day in her police interview saying, I was downstairs. It happened upstairs. Before he died, the night before, we did not know what to do. They chopped him up. Oh my God, I can see it now. But my Colin didn't have nothing to do with it. In a really macabre way, almost all the family were involved in the cutting up and disposal of the body and they all created a cover story if body parts were ever found, which was they'd not seen him since the end of 2008, and the only incident they remember was when a man called Barry accused him of sexually assaulting his daughter. Michael's body was wrapped in layers of black bags and cling film and placed in a builder's bag, stowed in the boot of Robert Watt's car and driven to the lagoon, a 20-minute drive or so, where a fishing trolley and later a wheelbarrow was used to transport the corpse on the mile-long walk to the lagoon. His body was weighed down with heavy stones from the patio wall of the Watt family home, but then his headless corpse was spotted by the two anglers fishing at the lagoon in May 2009. When they discovered the bag with his body, they told police it had the smell of death. His knee joints, forearm and elbow were missing, as well as the head, although the torso and some other body parts were present. His severed head was not discovered until February 2010, shortly before the trial of the Watts, along with the other missing body parts. As the body had been in the water for so long, the pathologist could not be certain how Michael had died. He found evidence that soft tissue had been cut with a sharp object, like a knife, but a saw, meat cleaver or hatchet had been used to cut through bone and sever the head. Three stab wounds were found on the torso and internal injuries to the stomach and intestine had been caused by people jumping on the man. The aorta artery had also been pierced and this would have been quite capable of causing death due to rapid internal bleeding. However, the pathologist could not say if the stab wounds had been inflicted before or after death. He said the stab wound and internal damage could have been capable of causing the death, but added, that's not to say that that was the cause of death. At first, the Watts family tried to stick to their story, but frankly, to say they weren't the brightest bunch is a bit of an understatement. After news of the discovery of Michael's torso broke in May, 
James Watt went into hiding with his girlfriend Natasha Oldfield while police were trying to track him down. But their lies began to unravel and combined with the forensics from the stone used to weigh Michael down which was from their garden, Richard Watt finally agreed to show police officers where the missing parts of Michael's body had been placed in the lagoon in the February. Depraved was the word used by the judge at the trial. Judge John Bevan QC made the comments at Luton Crown Court as he jailed three members of the Watt family for life for murdering Michael Gilbert and three others for familial homicide. James Watt, 27, his girlfriend Natasha Oldfield, 29, and his brother Richard's girlfriend Nicola Roberts, 22, were jailed for life. He said he would have given James a full life sentence, but he'd have seen it as a badge of honour. I mean, seriously, what a loser. But Watt will serve a minimum of 36 years, Oldfield a minimum of 18, and Roberts a minimum of 15. James's brother, Robert Watt, aged 20, and his mum, Jennifer Smith Dennis, 58, were jailed for 8 years and 10 years respectively for familial homicide. A third brother, Richard Watt, 25, who previously pleaded guilty to familial homicide, was sentenced to six years in prison. James Watt was heard to say, cheers to the judge, as he was sent down. Class act to the end, huh? Passing sentence, the judge said the whole case was a grotesque story. He said that Michael Gilbert died a cruel, lonely and violent death, and that the description of him as a slave was only a mild exaggeration. He told the family, In all my years, both on the bench and at the bar, I've only ever dealt with a handful of cases where the behaviour can properly be described as depraved, and you can rightly be added to this list. How in a civilised society, this behaviour was allowed to continue is a mystery. The judge compared the family to a Hogarth cartoon. The mum, Jennifer Smith Dennis, was told by the judge that she had created a monstrous and dysfunctional family. He told James Watt he had shown wholly exceptional brutality and no trace of remorse throughout the trial. He said, You had your fun, now you must pay for it. You are dangerous, cruel, vindictive, spiteful and heartless. Richard Watt, who gave evidence for the prosecution in the trial, was sentenced separately from the other defendants. The judge told him his biggest part was inaction and he'd failed Michael both in his life and in his death until he strengthened his resolve to tell the truth about what had happened. Michael's mum, Rosalie White, did not want to comment after the sentence but his sister Patricia said it's about time it's been done, it's been dragging on for long enough. Michael has been tortured long enough and now he can finally be left in peace. Speaking of James Watt's reaction to his sentence, she said, All I can say is it's going to be him that's going to regret everything that's happened. I hope they rot, I really do. You just can't get your head around how sick people can be. Detective Chief Inspector John Humphreys from the Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Major Crime Unit said that the callousness shown by the defendants was beyond anything he had seen in more than 26 years' service. We're very pleased this has come to a successful conclusion, he said. I think the sentences accurately reflect the nature of the violence 
that was meted out over the course of the last 10 years. The words that stick in my mind from the judge are grotesque and depraved over the nature of the behaviour that led to Michael's death. And the Luton Safeguarding of Vulnerable Adults Board announced a serious case review into how the social services dealt with Michael Gilbert. It aimed to establish if anything could have been done differently by the local professionals and agencies who worked to safeguard vulnerable adults. We'll just skip the findings, shall we? Just save us all a lot of time and effort. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It is so hard for me, and for you too, surely, that this actually happened in a residential street in England. It is like something out of a horror movie. Once more, as we see so often on this podcast, it goes to show that we just don't know what goes on between four walls of one house at any time. It is, of course, a devastating story, and we can only feel for Michael and what he lived through until his brutal death. And as for his attempts to escape, I mean, it's just heartbreaking, isn't it? It is, of course, easy, and I know I do it all the time, to point out the clear failings of the authorities who let Michael down. And as you know, I sigh every time I read the detailed reviews detailing their failings. But in this case, Michael did not want to be helped, and so we do perhaps have to cut them a little bit of slack. When I've been researching this story, I keep coming back to looking at photographs of a young Michael, fresh-faced, handsome, bright, and with everything to look forward to. And then the descent into something only akin to hell before his premature death at just 27. What an utterly terrible story it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Please join me at the Facebook group to discuss this case and any other aspect of UK True Crime. And to support the show and take advantage of a very special offer of nothing at all, please head to patreon.com where you can access 22 bonus episodes plus other exclusive content. You can also feel good this festive season that you have given me the gift of weekly podcast support. (laughs) I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Something like that anyway. You will note that I have 153 Patreon supporters, whereas Sword and Scale have 16,500. Look, I'm exceptionally grateful for every single Patreon supporter I have, but there is certainly room for more people to join our exclusive club. So if you can, please do join us. So that is all from me for today. Thank you for listening to the show. Get to East Squared and of course by Hangman. And let's speak again next week. Until then, take it easy. And remember, especially in this Christmas party season, stay classy.